recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org, and this is Christagenia on TalkShoe. Today is Friday, July 20th, 2012. I've been on the road for about 51, 52 days now. I'm in the North Georgia mountains at the home of Tony and Sue. I will withhold their last name because they are very, they're discreet people and I will respect their wishes. I'm having a wonderful time here. Tomorrow I move on to the home of um, Bruce and Nancy Bond. I'm sure Bruce don't mention, don't mind me mentioning his last name. And I look forward to that. I hope to be home in New York on July 29th, but I might be home a little sooner than that, and and that depends on how I plan next week. I want to discuss um I want to discuss the 82nd Psalm one more time, and that's because I want to make sure people get it. On a recent program, I had a discussion of the 82nd Psalm with my good friend Don Spears. And it seems to me that people are using the 82nd Psalm in order to support the idea that Satan is in heaven and that the gods of the 82nd Psalm refer to some sort of Satan in heaven. There's absolutely no support for that in Scripture, and that's absolutely contrary to much of Scripture. Joshua Christ himself said in John chapter 10, and I will read verses 33 through 36. The Judeans replied to him, We do not stone you on account of a good work, but on account of blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself a god. Joshua replied to them, Is it not written in your law that I have said, Ye are gods? If he spoke of them as gods, to whom the word of God had come, and the writing is not able to be broken, he whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, you tell that you blaspheme, because I said, I am a son of God. Christ came to reveal things kept secret since the foundations of the world. And to many people, they are still secret because they do not take the time to understand his words. If Christ said that the words of the 82nd Psalm, where it says, ye are gods, describe those to whom the word of God had come, as he tells us in John chapter 10, then those words apply to men and not to angels and certainly not to angels who are in rebellion against God. Here is the King James Version of the psalm, the 82nd Psalm, a psalm of Asaph with some comments. Verse 1, God stands in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. The next passage, verse 2, describes the judgment of God, which is given as a response from God himself. This is sort of like a one-sided dialogue. The first verse introduces the person giving the dialogue. The second verse is the dialogue of the person. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Now, 
Satan is, as he is often called in Scripture, the wicked one. So how can God be chastising Satan for accepting the persons of the wicked? That assumption alone is utterly ridiculous. But that is the assumption made by at least some people who believe that Satan is in heaven, which itself is a strange religion. Rather, as Christ tells us in John chapter 10, God is telling those to whom the word of God had come that they should not accept wicked people. He is talking to the children of Israel because the scripture tells us that the word of God had only come to the children of Israel. Verse 3, defend the poor and fatherless, do justice to the afflicted and needy, deliver the poor and needy, rid them out of the hand of the wicked. Here, the children of Israel are told to deliver the poor and needy out of the hands of that Satan, which in truth represents that collective wicked race, which are the seed of the serpent. Verse 5, they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Adam is the son of God, Luke 3.38. The children of Israel are the children of God, Deuteronomy 14.1. The children of Israel are the sons and daughters of Yahweh their God. Isaiah 43.6. Three witnesses. How many do we need? All the children of Adam are the offspring of God. Acts 17 verses 26 through 28. How many witnesses do we need before we stop hearing the claim that the phrase sons of God here refers to satanic rebel angels? The children of Israel shall walk in darkness for as long as they accept the persons of the wicked. And that is the true message of this psalm. Anyone who claims that this psalm describes some Satan in heaven is destroying this true meaning and important message of this psalm. Verse 7, But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. Or, this may be rendered, but you shall die like Adam. That word for men is singular. It is not plural in the Hebrew. It is singular in the Hebrew. It should be read, ye shall die like Adam. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and in Romans chapter 5, sin came through the world. Death came into the world through the one man, Adam. All men die in Adam. Well, speaking to the descendants of Adam, speaking to the children of Israel, ye shall die like Adam, even though ye are gods, and fall like one of the shining ones. The word for princes, it has been argued, may be interpreted as shining ones. This is argued by certain Hebrew scholars. And that may indeed refer to the fallen angels. It's not necessary. It doesn't damage the rest of the interpretation of the psalm, if that's not the way it's interpreted. However, that may indeed refer to the fallen angels. Verse 8, 
Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. This is a cry for the Messiah, since all men have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Therefore, only he can save us. As an aside, and this is a little understood, I think, even though it's plainly evident, if ye are gods, and if, as Christ himself says in the gospel, no man is better than his master, but he who is perfected shall be as his master or his teacher. If that is true, and if God's law of kind after kind is true, and if we are his children and he is God, well, now you'll understand the statement in the law which says that ye are gods. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verse 1. Then calling together the twelve, he gave to them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them to proclaim the kingdom of Yahweh and to heal those with illnesses. There are two words, and this is very misunderstood in Scripture. There are two words in the New Testament which are nearly always translated as devil in the King James Version of the New Testament. They are Diabolus, Strong's number 1228, and Daimon, Strong's number 1142. Sometimes that appears in the diminutive form, daimonion, Strong's number 1140. It's still basically the same word. We have diabolus and we have demons. A diabolus is literally an accuser, someone who casts accusations. By implication, it's a false accuser, which was the way that the common Greek language used the word. It is the root of our English word, diabolical. The word is translated as slanderer, which is an accurate translation, in 1 Timothy 3.11. But everywhere else in the King James Version of the Bible, it is devil. A daimon, or daimonion, is the Greek word from which we get the English word demon, very plain. The diminutive form was also used by secular Greek writers. And I will conjecture that one's interpretation of the word demon is dependent upon one's perspective, whether one is a Christian or a pagan. It was used to denote the divine power, deity, or divinity by pagan Greeks. And also, a spirit or a being inferior to God by Christian Greeks. 
both according to Joseph Thayer's Greek-English lexicon and also in secular Greek writers cited by Liddell and Scott, it is defined as an inferior divine being, a demon, by both Christian and pagan writers. It's an inferior divine being or a spirit inferior to God. A demon, and the, the non-diminutive root form of the word is only found in the New Testament in Matthew 8.31, is according to Sayer, a god or a goddess or an inferior deity in the common Greek language. In the New Testament, these words describe evil spirits, whether they are demon or the diminutive form daimonion. But the King James Version chose to translate both of these words, daimon and diabolus, as devil, is quite unfortunate, because it has caused much confusion in the minds of many over the nature of Satan. Whenever anyone is possessed of a devil in the Gospels, that word is always one of the Greek words related to the Greek word daimon, for demon, which includes daimonion and the verb daimonizomahi. Yes, daimonizomahi, which simply means to be possessed by a demon. These demons are spiritual, supernatural, unseen by man, and interact with the world only when they are able to inhabit the body of man or beast. Yet, the devils which walk about, the physical devils which are contrary to men, are the devils called Diabolus. And we see in John 6, chapter 6, verse 70, that Judas was called a Diabolus where Christ said, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. That word is diabolus. And we see in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, that, as the apostle says, our opponent walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The word there is also diabolus. A diabolus was also the devil of the temptation of Christ, recorded in Luke chapter 4 and in Matthew chapter 4. And that, too, was certainly a walking, talking devil. As for the demon spirits, in the discussion of Luke chapter 8, verses 28 through 33, presented here last week, it is certain from certain apocryphal literature found in the Ethiopic copies of One Enoch and in the Dead Sea Scrolls that demons were believed to have been the disembodied spirits of bastards, and especially of those bastards produced by the race mixing which occurred in the days leading up to the flood of Noah. And a reference to them is found in the Dead Sea Scroll designated 42510, a fragment of what is called the Songs of the Sage, 
in a part of fragment one, and I quote, declare the splendor of his radiance, referring to God, in order to frighten and terrify all the spirits of the ravaging angels and the bastard spirits, demons, Lilith, owls, and jackals, and those who strike unexpectedly to lead astray the spirit of knowledge to make their hearts forlorn. Another reference is found in the Dead Sea Scroll designated 4Q204, a part of the Enoch literature, where it says, exterminate all the spirits of the bastards and the sons of the watchers. So there's a definite difference between demon and diabolus. The Diabolus devil walks about the earth. The Diabolus devil, it can be demonstrated, is that race of people that descended from the seed of the serpent. The demon is a spirit being. The demon is a spirit being which apparently is created from the corruption of the creation of Yahweh our God. The demons, in the end, will all be destroyed, according to the Enoch literature. According to the law of God, it is certain that the demons will be destroyed. Have they been destroyed yet? I won't say that. Can demons exist today? I won't say no. I have no personal experience with demons. They were here in the first century. It's very clear from the biblical record that they had personalities, that they recognized the Messiah, that Christ cast them out. Did that end their existence? I won't say that. I don't know. But demons shouldn't be confused with the Satan entity, which throughout Scripture can refer to various things. It can refer to the original fallen angels. It can refer to all of their descendants. And they are here today in the physical world. And they are our opponent, as Peter says, walking about seeking whom they may devour. Satan is not in heaven. Satan is all around us. Luke 9, verse 3. And he said to them, You take nothing on the road, neither staff, nor bag, nor wheat bread, nor silver, nor have two shirts. The katone, the cloak in the King James, very often, or sometimes I think it's coat. The katone is the garment worn next to the skin. It's properly a shirt. When Christ walked the earth, he told his apostles not to take care for their own provisions, as we see here in Luke chapter 9. However, when Christ was prepared to depart this world, he warned the apostles that they must take such care for their provisions. And we see that in Luke chapter 22, verses 35 and 36, where it reads, and I quote, And he said unto them, when I sent you without purse and scrip and shoes, 
did you lack anything? He's referring back to this very instance here in Luke chapter 9. And they said nothing. And he said unto them, but now he that has a purse, let him take it, and likewise his scrip. And he that has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Luke 9, 4. And into whatever house you should enter, abide there, and from there depart. And whomever does not receive you, departing from that city, you shake off the dust from your feet for a testimony to them. Shaking the dust off one's feet was a sign that you wanted nothing further to do with the people whom gave you reason to do so. Paul expressed having done this in Acts chapter 13, and I'll read from verse 48. And hearing the people rejoiced and extolled the word of the prince, and as many as were appointed to eternal life, predestination, the children of Israel, had believed. And the word of the prince was carried throughout the whole land. And the Judeans urged on some of the noble, pious women and the first men of the city and aroused a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and ejected them from their borders. And they, shaking the dust off their feet upon them, went into Iconion, and the students were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. Verse 6. Then going forth, they passed through each village, announcing the good message and healing everywhere. Then Herod the Tetrarch heard of all the things taking place. The Codex Alexandrinus, just to give an example of the many variations in the manuscripts, the Codex Alexandrinus and the Washingtonensis and the majority text upon which the King James is based have here that Herod the Tetrarch heard of all the things being done by him. The text is in agreement with the 3rd century papyrus P75 and the Codices Sinaiticus, Vaticanus, Ephraim Siri and the Codex Beze, which varies slightly. This is also one example. And there are some, but the Codex Ephraim Siri is definitely a part of what's known as the Alexandrian tradition, along with the Codex Alexandrinus. And the majority text upon which the King James is based very often agrees with the Codex Alexandrinus, but not always. Sometimes it agrees with the Codex Beze instead. However, the Codex Ephraim Siri usually agrees with the Codex Alexandrinus, and here is one instance, and, and it's a minority, but here is one instance where they depart. That's just translation trivia, just to give people an idea of all the factors and things that must be considered. And Herod the Tetrarch heard of all the things taking place and was perplexed on account of it being spoken by some, that John had been raised from the dead, but by some, that Elijah has appeared, and others, that some prophet of antiquity has arisen. And Herod said, I have had John beheaded. So who is this concerning whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. 
Luke mentions John in chapter 7 where he still lives. But Luke does not record the actual death of John. The actual death of John is recorded in only one gospel in Mark chapter 6, where it is related in detail. Verse 10. Then returning, the ambassadors, or apostles, if you will, I would rather I would rather translate the word, right? Then returning, the ambassadors described to him whatever they had done, and taking with him, taking them, he withdrew privately into a city called Bethsaida. But knowing it, the crowd followed him, and accepting them, he spoke to them concerning the kingdom of Yahweh, and he healed those having need of treatment. The name Bethsaida is derived from the Hebrew words meaning house of fish. The Codex Sinaiticus has only that he withdrew into a desert place. The Alexandrinus, Ephraim Siri, Washingtonensis, and a majority text, so again we see the King James agree with the Alexandrian tradition. They have into the desert place of a city called Bethsaida. The Codex Bazai has into a village named Bethsaida or Bethsaida. The Christogenian New Testament follows the Codex Vaticanus in the third century papyrus P75, which agrees with the text, but also has Bethsaida rather than Bethsaida, which is you know, evidence that certain translators interpreted the Hebrew tav or sav letter as a theta or a th, and others interpreted it as the letter d, which is actually kind of odd, but that's what happened. And it's actually contrary to Hebrew because we know in Hebrew that beth means house, and it could not have been a d, except perhaps in certain Greek dialects. Note that nowhere... Nowhere in Scripture does it ever say that Christ spoke of personal salvation. In fact, Christ told us precisely the opposite, that we should not have a care for ourselves or our own salvation. In Luke 9.24, later in this very chapter, Christ says, For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whoever will lose it for my sake, the same shall save it. Rather, we are to fear only God, because only God can possibly destroy us. Fear not those who can kill the body. That possibility that God can destroy us certainly does not detract from any of his promises concerning us that we would live if indeed we are the children of Israel in the first place. Christ did not preach the gospel of personal salvation. Rather, Christ preached the gospel of the kingdom of Yahweh. Therefore, we should be concerned for our brethren, not for ourselves. And in that way, we show ourselves worthy of the kingdom of God, not having concern for ourselves. We have an insurance. We have an assurance that all Israel is saved. Psalm 45, verse 6. 
Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. The kingdom comes first. That means your brethren come first. Matthew chapter 6, verse 31. Therefore you should not have a care, saying, What should we eat, or what should we drink, or what should we wear? For all these things the heathen seek after. Indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But you seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore you should not have a care for tomorrow. For tomorrow shall care for itself. Sufficient for the day are its vices. That word vices may have been translated troubles. There should be no concern among Christians for personal salvation. Verse 12. Then the day began to decline. The word decline of the day actually did refer to the position of the sun. It's a literal rendering of the verb clino, which means to make, to bend, to slope or to slant or to incline. To decline of the day. The term seems to indicate mid to late afternoon. There are people who teach a noon-to-noon Sabbath. They claim to be Christian identity. I think they're absolutely crazy. They use this word to try to convince men that when the day declines, that that's when evening comes, and that refers to the first minutes after noon, which is strange. It's very strange. And coming to him, the twelve said, Release the crowd that going into the surrounding villages and farms. They may lodge and find provisions. Because we are here in a desert place. And he said to them, You give to them to eat. But they said, There is nothing with us, more than five loaves and two fish. Unless then going, we could buy food for all these people. Indeed. There were about 5,000 men. And he said to his students, have them recline in groups about 50 each. And having done thusly, then they all reclined. Then taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up into the heaven, he blessed them and broke and gave them to his students to offer the crowd. And they ate, and all were filled, and the excess of fragments taken by them was 12 baskets. This feeding of the multitude is the same as that recorded by Matthew in chapter 14, in Mark chapter 6, and in John chapter 6. It is therefore attested to in all four Gospels. All accounts agree that 5,000 men ate from five loaves and two fish and left 12 baskets of fragments at least in the majority of the manuscripts. The Codex Ephraim Siri has seven loaves here, an obvious scribal error. Another event where Yahshua had miraculously fed a great multitude with a little food is recorded only in Matthew chapter 15 and in Mark chapter 8, where 4,000 men left seven baskets of fragments after being fed 
from seven loaves and a few small fishes. Of course, there may be something to all of these numbers. 5,000 men, five loaves, two fish, 7,000 men. Seven loaves, seven, four loaves, seven baskets of fragments, 12 baskets of, I'm not the numerology guy, I'm sorry, I'm just not. There may be something to the numbers. I don't buy into um, Bullinger's scripture and numbers because I know that it comes from the notes of the Masoretes. It comes from the notes of the rabbis. It comes ultimately from the Kabbalah. I would rather do without the Kabbalah and focus on the plain word of scripture. There is no precise Old Testament prophecy of this miracle. But aside from the feeding of Israel with manna in the desert for 40 years, there is an Old Testament precedent for this miracle. At 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 42, and I will read verses 42 through 44. And there came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, and full ears of corn and the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What should I set this before a hundred men? And he said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith Yahweh, They shall eat and shall leave thereof. So we see a type of this miracle of Christ in the New Testament. So he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof, according to the word of Yahweh. Now, while it is not as extreme an example as a few loaves and five fish for 5,000 people, I'm sorry, a few loaves and two fish for 5,000 people, we see that a large group of people were somehow filled, and there were leftovers from a relatively small amount of food. And there were certainly women and children with the 100 men, as there also were with the 5,000 men of this account, only men are counted properly. Only men are counted in Hebrew scriptures, as we see in the book of Numbers. These examples of these miracles, and we must believe them, they're in all the Gospels, they're in all the ancient accounts. And if we don't believe that God can have efficacy in the world, then we should throw our Bibles in the trash. These examples are here so that we know that if indeed God wants us to eat, then we shall eat and we shall have plenty. The manna in the desert did not fail our fathers for 40 years. The woman of Zarephath, who comforted Elijah, ate for many days from a small amount of meal and oil. While there was a great famine in the land because it did not rain for quite some time, I think it was three and a half years. It says of that account in 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 16, that the barrel of meal wasted not, neither did the cruise of oil fail, according to the word of Yahweh, which he spoke by Elijah. When Elijah met the woman, the barrel contained but a handful of meal. Christ tells us in Luke chapter 12, from verse 22, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what you shall eat, neither for the body what you shall put on. 
The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. We should believe him. Our God shall provide for us in the hardest of times. The same event where Yahshua fed the 5,000 from a few loaves and a few two fish, and then walked on the water to catch up with his disciples is also recorded in the Gospel of John in chapter 6. John wrote from a very different perspective, and he recorded some things which happened afterward, which none of the other Gospel writers recorded. And among them is the great Bread of Life discourse. Here is a part of that discourse from John, which was said to succeed this very event. From, verse, from John 6, verse 22, on the next day, the crowd, which stood across the sea, had seen that there was not another boat there except one, and that Yahshua had not entered together with his students into the vessel, but only his students had departed. But vessels came from Tiberias, near the place where they ate the bread, giving thanks to Yahweh. Therefore, when the crowd had seen that Yahshua is not there, nor his students, they themselves boarded into the boats and came to Capernaum seeking Yahshua. And finding him across the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you arrive here? Now we can note that in Matthew chapter 14, following the feeding of the 5,000 people, there is the description of the account where Yahshua had walked on water to meet his disciples, which is not recorded by Mark or Luke, but which is indeed corroborated here in John chapter 6. Yahshua replied to them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you have seen signs, but because you have eaten of the loaves and have been satiated. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of today's modern-day churches. People go to church not because they love the Word of God, but because they could create a social network and build their businesses, feeding their bellies. You must work not for that food which perishes, but for that food which abides for eternal life, which the Son of Man shall give to you. Indeed, Yahweh the Father has confirmed him. If we seek the food which abides for eternal life, Yahweh himself shall provide for us the food which perishes, which is our daily bread, which is what we're told to pray for by Christ himself. Then they said to him, what should we do that we may accomplish the works of Yahweh? Yahshua replied and said to them, this is the work of Yahweh, that you would believe in him whom he had sent. Now, as Paul explains in 1 Timothy chapter 6, believing in him requires, in a, requires a belief in all of his word. Verse 30, then they said to him, then what sign do you do in order that we would see and we may believe in you? What could you accomplish? He had just fed 5,000 people from a few loaves and fishes. Our fathers ate manna in the desert, just as it is written. Bread from heaven he had given them to eat. 
The Apostle John, writing this gospel and the things that he recorded, seeks to demonstrate to us the argumentativeness of the Pharisees. They either saw or at least heard the accounts of how he had just fed the 5,000 from so little food. Now they seem to be saying to him, big deal. Our fathers ate manna in a desert, as if to attempt to belittle what he had done. Then Yahshua said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives to you the true bread from heaven. The Pharisees sought their righteousness from the laws of Moses alone and not from God. Verse 33. For the bread of Yahweh is he descending from heaven and giving life to the society, the world, meaning the society or the world which he had created and not the world which had become corrupted by the adversary. That's why the society needs saving. It needs saving because the whole world lies under the power of the devil. Then they said to him, Prince, always give to us this bread. Yahshua said to them, I am the bread of life. He coming to me shall not hunger, and he believing in me shall not ever thirst. But I have said to you, that even you have seen me and you do not believe. Each whom the Father gives to me shall come to me, and he coming to me I shall not cast outside, because I have descended from heaven not in order that I would do that of my will, but the will of he who has sent me. This is the will of he who has sent me, that each of them who are given to me I shall not destroy, but I shall resurrect them. In the last day, this describes all of Israel and then secondarily all of the other Adamic nations, as Christ testifies in part in Luke chapter 11. For this is the will of my Father, that each who seeing the Son and believing in him would have eternal life, as Peter described, that Christ preached the gospel even to those who died before the flood. To the spirits in prison. And I shall resurrect him in the last day. Now to return to Luke chapter 9, in the later part of verse 18. And it came to pass while he was alone praying, the students joined with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who does the crowd say that I am? Literally, who does the crowd say of me to be? There are events here recorded in Mark and Matthew, which are not recorded here by Luke. Among them is the feeding of the 4,000 with the seven loaves and a few fish, and also the passing by Christ through the regions of Tyre and Sidon, and the encounter with the Canaanite woman recorded in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15. Except for a few small anomalies, and we'll point another one of them out later this evening. There is a very near-perfect harmony to the Gospel accounts, which is amazing, considering the testimonies of the circumstances under which the Gospels were written. For instance, Luke collected records from many other witnesses and wrote out a Gospel as he believed, 
to be exacting in order from the beginning. John wrote his gospel 60 years following the crucifixion, 62 or 63 years to be more precise. Mark wrote his gospel many years after the crucifixion, after the death of Peter, and only wrote down those things which Peter had informed him of. So the gospel is pretty amazing. Once one actually investigates and understands all of those circumstances. Verse 19. And answering, they said, John the Baptist, in answer to his question, who do they say of me to be? But others, Elijah, and others that some prophet of antiquity has arisen. Then he said to them, and who do you say that I am? And Peter replying said, the anointed one of Yahweh, or the Christ, or the Messiah of Yahweh. All of those words meaning basically the same thing. And censuring them, he commanded that no one is to speak this, saying that it was necessary for the Son of Man to suffer many things. And to be rejected by the elders and the high priests and scribes. And to be slain, then in the third day to be raised. Contrary to the claims of the Catholic Papists, Luke did not think that it was so important to mention any special appointment of Peter by Christ for these words, elevating him above the other apostles as the recent-day Romish church purports happened here, attempting to take advantage of the way that Matthew recorded this event in his gospel. Neither does Mark think that this event is of any great import, and Mark's gospel is indeed a record of Peter's own testimony. Mark records the same event in chapter 8 at verses 29 and 30, and his gospel says, and he asked them, but what do you say for me to be? Responding, Peter says to him, you are the Christ. And he admonishes them that they should speak to no one concerning him. In the Gospel of John, there is no mention of this account at all. However, John says in the first chapter of his Gospel, and I quote from verse 40 of John chapter 1, Andrew the brother of Simon Peter was one of the two of those hearing John, referring to John the Baptist, and following him. He finds his own older brother Simon, meaning Simon Peter, and says to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated Christ. He led him, meaning Andrew led Peter, after Andrew told Peter that they had found the Messiah. He led him to Yahshua. Looking at him, Yahshua said, You are Simon, the son of John, or Johannes. You shall be called Cephas. And John writes a parenthetical statement, which is interpreted a stone. Therefore, we see with this event, which we are discussing here in Luke chapter 9, 
and which is also recorded in Mark chapter 8 and in Matthew chapter 16. Peter's proclamation that Christ is the Messiah only acknowledges that Yahshua is the Christ. Whereas, according to John, the fact that Yahshua was the Christ was realized and announced by Andrew long prior to Peter's acknowledgement. Note that even the King James Version in John's Gospel recognizes that Cephas, the Hebrew word which is equivalent to Petrus, from which we get the name Peter, means stone, a stone. And from John's Gospel, we see that Peter was given that name by Yahshua at the beginning, at the very beginning, when he first encountered Peter as an apostle and, and appointed him a fisher of man, long before the proclamation that Peter makes here in Luke. And Paul often uses that word Cephas in its Hebrew form to refer to Peter. Therefore, the correct reading of this account as it stands in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 and 18, is substantiated, since the Greek should interpret the words of Christ recorded there as saying, Blessed you are, Simon, son of Jonas, because flesh and blood have not revealed it to you, but my Father who is in the heavens. And I say to you that you are a stone, Petrus, a name which Peter was already given, and which is Cephas in Hebrew, and which only means a stone. Yet upon this bedrock, Petra, the Greek word for a large, immobile, immovable shelf of rock, upon this bedrock shall I build my assembly, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Matthew recorded the discourse at greater length than either Luke or Mark. And evidently, neither Luke nor Mark saw any special significance in the words of Yahshua as Peter relates to the church of God. And neither did John in his gospel, since John did not even record this event, the Catholic interpretation of the passages that exist in Matthew is a deception. Luke 9, verse 23. Then he said to all, if anyone wishes to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross each day. Those words each day will be discussed momentarily. And he must follow me. For whoever would wish to save his life shall lose it. And whoever would lose his life because of me, he shall save it. For what does it benefit a man gaining the entire cosmos, but losing or suffering damage to himself? Now the codices Ephraimi Siri and the Beze and the majority text want that phrase each day where it says, if anyone wishes to come behind me, he must deny himself and take up his cross each day and must follow me. However, the Christogenian New Testament, the text here, follows the 3rd century papyrus P75 and the codices, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, the oldest codices, which are from the 4th century, and the Codex Washingtonensis. 
The words each day are admittedly not at all found in the corresponding accounts in Matthew chapter 16 and Mark chapter 8. However, that does not discredit Luke's more complete rendering of the testimony. We don't necessarily have to lose our lives in the same pattern that our Savior did. What good would that do our brethren? We can't resurrect ourselves from the dead and serve our brethren. We can lose our lives each day. We can take up that cross each day by denying ourselves in service to our brethren. By denying ourselves, I don't necessarily mean the philosophical Buddhist, Hindu, whatever you want to call it, New Age method of denying oneself. I simply mean, and I believe that the text simply means the act of putting the interests of your brethren ahead of your own interests. Pretty simple. Serve your brother. Love your brother. And in that manner, you can follow Christ and be of use to your brethren. Christ came in order to dedicate his life for his kinsmen, which are his race. He tells us that if we desire to follow him, then we should do as he did. If we, in turn, do not dedicate our lives to our kinsmen, then in the end, our lives shall be meaningless to us, regardless of how much we may value them. For this reason, we must realize that the commandment to love our brethren means that our race comes first, as Christ says that he was sent to none but the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Luke 9, verse 26. Indeed, whoever would be ashamed of me and my words, him the Son of Man shall be ashamed of. When he should come in the honor of his and that of the Father and of the holy messengers or angels. There are a host of the sayings of Christ which men are ashamed of today. And since Yahshua Christ is indeed Yahweh incarnate, that must include his Old Testament words as well as his New Testament words, if God is one. Verse 27. Now truthfully, I say to you, there are some among those standing here who shall not taste of death until they should see the kingdom of Yahweh. The statement at the end of verse 27 seems to mean that there are some who would never taste of death. Since once attaining the kingdom of Yahweh, there is no death, as hell and death are cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.14 A man cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born from above, John 3.3. 3. While it may be argued exactly what is meant by this saying, 
The vision and the verses which follow should be evidence, of, evidence enough, since the apostles testify that they had seen Christ conferring with Moses and Elijah in the event which is commonly called the Transfiguration on the Mount, which begins at Matthew 9, verse 28. And there came to pass after those words about eight days, taking Peter and John and Jacob, or James, he went up into the mountain to pray, and it happened upon his praying that the image of his face was different and his garment gleaming white. The Codex Beze has here that the appearance of his face had been altered. The portrayal of this transformation is apparently what Paul was describing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he said that we shall not all fall asleep, but we shall all be changed. In verse 51 of that chapter. Matthew 9, I'm sorry, Luke 9.30. And behold, two men were speaking with him, which were Moses and Elijah, who appearing with effulgence, had spoken of his departure, in other words, of his impending death, resurrection, and ascension, which was about to be fulfilled in Jerusalem. The Greek word rendered departure is actually exodus. Corresponding accounts of this event are found in Matthew 9, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 17 and Mark chapter 9. Note that the gospel writers, all three of them, were fully confident that the men whom the witnesses had observed were indeed Moses and Elijah. Verse 32, then Patros and those with him were weighed down with sleep. Then being fully awake, they saw his effulgence and the two men standing with him. And it happened that upon their separating from him, meaning the separation from Christ of the two men, Moses and Elijah. Peter said to Yahshua, Master, it is good for us to be here, and we should make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing that which he speaks. Luke attempting, apparently, to reflect Peter's excitement and con con I've lost the word, consternation. And upon his saying these things, there came a cloud, and it overshadowed them, and they were frightened upon the entering of them into the cloud, the entering of the two men, apparently, into the cloud. Job, chapter 26, verse 9, something which is little mentioned in Scripture, and therefore quite esoteric. He holdeth back the face of his throne, and spreadeth his cloud upon it. In other words, to hide its appearance from men. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, speaking of the ascension of Christ, and speaking these things, upon their watching, he was lifted up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing into heaven upon his going, then behold, two men in white clothing stood by them, and they said, men, Galileans, referring to the apostles, 
Why do you stand looking into the heaven? This Yahshua, who is taken up from you into the heaven, thusly shall he come in the manner which you have beheld him going into the heaven. Many commentators want to treat the return of Christ as an abstract concept, and scripture tells us that his return shall be literal and concrete. Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 5, And it came to pass in his traveling, approaching Damascus, speaking of Paul of Tarsus, then suddenly there shone around him a light from the heaven, and falling upon the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, Who are you, master? And he, I am Yahshua, whom you persecute. With certainty, there is more to the creation of God than what we normally perceive. And at times, some of us here on earth are shown glimpses of what may be called the supernatural, what some New Age freaks would call aliens and UFOs. However, the, until the fulfillment of this age, the interpretation of those glimpses may be argued, and many people may be, be deceived concerning the nature of those glimpses if it conflicts with scripture, the interpretation is wrong. Verse 35, and a voice came from the cloud saying, this is my chosen son of him you listen or you hear. And upon the coming of the voice, they found Yahshua alone and they held their silence and they reported to no one in those days, anything of what they had seen. As an aside, the scripture tells us that Moses was dead and buried. It's in the book of Deuteronomy. The scripture tells us Elijah was taken up into heaven in a flaming chariot. He did not see death. And he won't until the kingdom of Yahweh should come. Apparently, he must have been there at the transfiguration on the mount. The apostles all confidently stated that these men were Moses and Elijah. The codices Alexandrinus, Ephraimisiri, Washingtonensis, and the majority text here have beloved son, which is also the testimony of Mark 9-7, rather than what we see here in Luke where it says chosen son. The Codex Beze has beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And that version agrees with Matthew 17, 5. So we see a departure from the manuscripts here. The text here where it says beloved, or, or I'm sorry, chosen son in Luke. My chosen son of him you listen agrees with the two third century papyri, P45 and P75. They are among the oldest existing papyri copies of the New Testament. And the codices, Sinaiticus, and Vaticanus. Now, where the text here says beloved, the word is agape, agapetos. It comes from the word agape, 
and it's not monogenes. The text of 2 Peter, where this account is described, agrees with the text of Matthew 17.5 in all of the manuscripts of 2 Peter, where there are minor differentiations only in the order of the words. And I will read 2 Peter 1.17. Another testimony of this very event, another testimony referring to the transfiguration on the mount, and it says, For receiving from Father Yahweh the dignity and honor of so great a voice, having been produced for him by the magnificent effulgence. So Peter refers to this cloud which announced the nature of the Christ. He referred to it as the magnificent effulgence, and he said that the voice uttered, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice we had heard, having been produced from out of heaven, with him being on the holy mountain. So 2 Peter describes this event once again. Luke 9, 37. And it happened on the next day, upon their coming down from the mountain, a great crowd met up with him. And behold, a man from the crowd had cried out, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my best beloved. And the Greek word for best beloved here is monogenes, which is literally only born. And look, a spirit seizes him, and suddenly he screams, and it attacks him with foaming, and with pain it departs from him, crushing him. And I had asked your students that they would expel it, and they were not able. Now where one may expect to see the Greek word for demon all of the manuscripts here have pneuma, the word for spirit, and they also have the word for spirit in Then replying, Yahshua said, O faithless and perverted race, until when shall I be with you that I should put up with you? Bring your son here. That Yahshua called these Judeans a faithless and perverted race, does not necessarily mean that every individual within the group is perverted, nor, I'm sorry, or does not have the capacity for faith. Rather, a small minority of intellectually active subversives in high places, such as we see with the Sadducees and the scribes and the Pharisees, a small minority of intellectually active subversives can easily pervert an entire nation, as we have seen happen quite often in the modern world, as it was in first century Judea. Verse 42, and then upon his coming forth, the demon ravaged him and attacked him. And Yahshua censured the unclean spirit. So we see here that demons are spirits, and we see that demons are unclean spirits. Very often, more often than not, in the accounts of the Gospels, where we see the word devil in the King James Version, the Greek word is demon. 
And Yahshua censured the unclean spirit and healed the youth. And he returned him to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of Yahweh. When men are able to do wonderful things, it is God who should be extolled. It is God who should be glorified and not the man to whom the wonderful thing was performed. It is at this point in Mark's Gospel that we see the exchange concerning demons and prayer where it says at Mark 9, verses 28 and 29, And upon his entering into a house, his students by themselves questioned him, For what had we not been able to cast it out? And that's a referral to what we see here. In this event, in verse 39, where it says, And I had asked your students that they would expel it, and they were not able. Mark records this exchange, and Luke does not. And he said to them, This kind by no one is able to cast out except with prayer. Back to Luke 9.43. And with all wondering at all the things which he did, he said to his students, You deposit in your ears these words. Indeed, the Son of Man is about to be handed over into the hands of men. But they did not understand his saying, and it was disguised from them that they could not comprehend it, and they were afraid to question him concerning the saying. Matthew merely states that the apostles were grieved exceedingly upon hearing these words. Mark's gospel supports Luke, where he wrote at Mark 9.32, but they did not perceive the statement, and they were afraid to ask him. If the apostles had perceived the statement, then the word of God may have been difficult to fulfill as God had planned it to be, since the vanity of men is often resistant to the word of God. And this is a good example of the fact that clarity of vision and fulfillment of purpose are the estates of a sovereign God, and it belongs to him exclusively to grant those things to men. Verse 46, And there entered in a dispute among them, which of them would be greater? The word dialogismos is dispute here in this context, but it is the same word rendered as reasoning in verse 47, and I'll read that verse. But Yahshua, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, laying hold of a child, had him stand next to himself. And he said to them, Whoever would receive this child, upon whom is my name, receives me. And whoever would receive me, receives he who has sent me. For he being the least among you all, he is great. Yahshua said, that he called Israel by his name. 
And there is no other race on the planet which can make the claim for themselves that they are called by his name. We should only be concerned with those children who are called by his name. Isaiah chapter 43, verses 1 through 7. But now, thus saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel. Fear not, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by thy name. Thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. This is speaking of the children of Israel in the dispersions. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. And when thou walkest through the fire, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am Yahweh thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. I gave Egypt for thy ransom, Ethiopia, and Seba for thee. Since thou wast precious in my sight, thou hast been honorable, and I have loved thee. Therefore will I give men for thee, and people for thy life. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east, and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, keep not back. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Even everyone that is called by my name, in reference to the children of Israel, and only for the children of Israel. For I have created him for my glory. I have formed him. Yeah, I have made him. O Jacob, and he that formed thee, O Israel, saith Yahweh that created thee, O Jacob. Nobody else can make the claim that, that Yahweh has put his name upon them. Therefore, the child upon whom is the name of Christ can only be a child of Israel. And therefore, only the children of Israel can ever properly be called Christians. Christ came to serve his race by healing them, by feeding them, and even by dying on behalf of them. And he is their God and the greatest of his own race, which he created. So if God acts in this manner, then we must also do so if we expect to be honored by him. Christ being servant of all, we should in turn accept all of those on behalf of whom he sacrificed himself. And we should also make sacrifice of ourselves on behalf of them. If we do not love our kindred as he did, we do not have any part with him. If we love our kindred, if we love our brethren, we do not seek to rule over them, nor do we seek to be the greatest among them. 1 John chapter 4, verse 20. If a man say, 
I love God, and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he that loves not his brother, whom he has seen, how could he love God, whom he has not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loves God loves his brother also. Luke 9, verse 49. Then replying, John said, Master, meaning John the Apostle, Master, we have seen someone casting out demons in your name, and we prevented him, because he does not follow with us. And Yahshua said to him, Do not prevent, for whoever is not against you is for you. If our fellow white man is not working against us, then we must not reject, nor should we inhibit him. If our fellow white man is not a part of our clique, our denomination, if he does not use our language, we must nevertheless accept him and treat him as we should treat a brother, so long as he is not working against us. Judeo-Christians, worshipers of the Jews, yes, they're working against us. They're worshiping the Antichrist. They need to be rebuked sharply. And it came to pass, with the fulfillment of the days of his being taken up, that he had set firm his countenance for which to go into Jerusalem. The King James Version says that he set his face. To set one's face or hear one's countenance is an ancient expression meaning to set one's resolve, to be resolved to do something. Today, it may be replaced with the idiom, to make up one's mind. He had made up his mind to go to Jerusalem. In ancient Near Eastern texts relating to the Old Testament, on page 217, column B, from a Mesopotamian legal document, it may be seen that a woman had taken her stand, as it says, quote-unquote, had taken her stand in a claim at law. And the footnote said that the words would literally be read that she had set her face. We see the same idiom in this Mesopotamian legal document. So we see that idiomatically, the term means to be resolved to do something. Another example of some of the issues one meets in translation. Luke 9.52, and he had sent messengers before his face, and going, they entered into a village of Samaritans, so as to prepare for him. Yet they did not receive him, because his countenance was for going to Jerusalem. Evidently, Yahweh kept the people from receiving Christ, from going out to meet him, because he was to go to Jerusalem at that time. As it was evidenced in verse 45 of this chapter a little earlier, where the apostles were perplexed by the words of Christ, 
This is another example of the fact that clarity of vision and fulfillment of purpose are the estates of a sovereign God and that he grants those things to men. Verse 54, but the students seeing it, Jacob and John said, Prince, do you wish that we should speak to cast down fire from heaven and destroy them? But turning, he censured them and traveled to another village. The King James Version has the words, even as Elias did, appended to the end of verse 54. Do you wish that we should speak to cast down fire from heaven and destroy them, even as Elias did? The King James follows the Codexes, Alexandrinus, Ephraimisiri, and Beze, and the majority text, of course, upon which the King James is based. However, the two third century papyri, P45 and P75, and also the Codexes, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus all want the phrase, even as Elias did. Therefore, it does not appear in a Christogenian New Testament. The King James Version has verses 55 and 56 as follows, and I quote, But he turned and rebuked them and said, Ye know not what manner of spirit ye are, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Now, the part of that text which reads, for the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them, that part of the text is not found in any Greek manuscript older than the ninth century. Now, the Codex Bezai, or Beze, which has many strange interpolations throughout Scripture, has at verses 55 and 56 the following, and I will read the Codex Beze. But turning, he censured them and said, You know not what sort of spirit you are, and traveled to another village. These readings must be considered as spurious. In all of the better manuscripts, in all of the balance of the ancient manuscripts, the Greek should be read from verses 55 and 56. But turning, he censured them and traveled to another village village. These last six verses of Luke chapter 9, which I am about to read, in these last six verses, the dialogue which which is provided appears at an earlier point in the order of events as they are recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew placed these last six verses in chapter 8, just before Christ commands and calms the storm while crossing the Sea of Galilee. Now that event was recorded by Luke in the 8th chapter of his Gospel, but Luke places these words in the last six verses of Luke chapter 9 here at this later time. Now, we have also witnessed other minor differences in how the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke record the order of certain events. There's no doubt. However, none of these detract 
from the authenticity or validity of the accounts themselves. And I must say, once we understand how the Gospels were recorded, these minor mistakes by the hand of man, and somebody has to be in error, either Matthew or Luke, these minor mistakes demonstrate to us the authenticity of the accounts, knowing the way in which they were recorded, since these minor mistakes reveal that the accounts are not mere copies. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. And upon their going on the road, someone said to him, I will follow you anywhere if you should depart. And Yahshua said to him, The foxes have dens and the birds of heaven nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay the head. Since the beasts of creation have homes, it is only natural that a man also have home. Verse 59, then to another he said, follow me. But he said, Prince, allow my going first to bury my father. And he said to him, let the dead bury the dead by themselves. But you, departing, proclaim the kingdom of Yahweh. Then another also said, I will follow you, Prince. But first, allow me to make arrangements for, or to dispose of, the things in my house. So Yahshua said to him, No one laying a hand upon the plow, then looking to the things behind, is ready for the kingdom of Yahweh. Certain churches abuse these words of Christ in order to coerce men into abandoning even their own families and to lead those men off for their own purposes like missionary work in Haiti. Doing this, they themselves pretend to be God on earth. Paul was one man called to announce the gospel by Christ himself. And Paul, in turn, at 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, tells us, and I quote, Now if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for his kin. He is denied the faith and is inferior to one of the faithless. Don't let churches take these last few verses of Luke chapter 9 out of context and tell you not to provide for your family. We, being Christians, must provide for our families. We must love our brethren as was discussed above earlier tonight in Luke chapter 9, verse 3. When Christ walked the earth, he told his apostles when he sent them out to have care of nothing. However, comparing Luke chapter 22, verses 35 and 36, when Christ was ready to depart this world, he told his apostles that they had better be prepared to provide themselves. Here, where Christ walks the earth, he commanded a man to follow him, not even worrying about his own family. The man had the opportunity to walk with God incarnate. 
and God incarnate certainly would have seen to that man's family. Yet, now Christ has departed, and he has not yet returned. We must indeed care for our own families, which is our obligation. At Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 through 36, Christ tells us, And when the Son of Man should come, and his effulgence, and all the messengers with him, then he shall sit upon his throne of honor, and they shall gather before him all the nations, and he shall separate them one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he shall indeed stand the sheep at his right hand, but the goats at his left. Then the king shall say to those at his right hand, the king shall say to the sheep, Come, those blessed of my father, you shall inherit the kingdom which has been prepared for you from the foundation of society. For I hungered, and you gave me to eat. I had thirst, and you would give me drink. I was a visitor, and you had taken me in. Naked, and you would clothe me. I had been sick, and you watched over me. I was in prison, and you would come to me. Christ goes on to say, He who has done these things for the least of my brethren has done them for me. Who does Christ expect us to take care of? The least of his brethren. The least of our own kinsmen, if we are indeed one of the lost sheep of the house of Israel, as Christ was of the house of Israel. We must take care of our families. One must not interpret the words of Christ as they are recorded in these last verses of Luke chapter 9 in any way that they must conflict with the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 25 or with the plain statement of Paul in 1 Timothy 5.8 where, and I repeat, he says, now if anyone does not provide for his own and especially of kin, he is denied the faith and is inferior to one of the faithless. If anybody is trying to separate you from your kin, from your family, from caring for your family, then they are goats. They are not sheep. If one's mother or father or brethren are sick or dying, one had better attend to them. That finishes my presentation of Luke chapter 9. Tomorrow night, I will be in Blue Ridge, Georgia. I will be with Sword Brethren, and we will be discussing a particular German propaganda pamphlet where Germany accused America of being a corruption of European society. It may be interesting. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh. I will be here next Friday with Luke chapter 10. Good night.